Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Dan Kilbride. I am the chair of the history department at John Carroll University outside of Cleveland, Ohio, and also the host of New Books in American Studies. Once a week or so, we find a book, or sometimes a book finds us, and we sit down with the author for an hour or so. Today, we are joined by Sharon Ann Murphy. We're going to discuss her book, Investing in Life, Insurance in Antebellum America. This book was published in 2010 by the Johns Hopkins University Press, but it just came out in paperback. So it's not a new book, but it's newish. The Antebellum period is actually a very fertile one for uh, business and economic history. Uh, we stopped using the term, uh, at least I think we have, market revolution, and thank God for that. Uh, but there's really a lot going on in terms of the history of early corporations, the history of internal improvements, and government intervention in the economy. So this book comes at a pretty exciting time in American economic history. So, Sharon Murphy, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, so, I'm an associate professor of history at Providence College. Um, I received my degree from the University of Virginia in uh, 2005, and I've been at Providence ever since. And uh, I, I'm a business historian, but uh, I like to say I'm social and business historian. I'm trying to uh, more look at the interactions between financial institutions and uh, their customers and the general public. So trying to uh, bring together a couple different uh, uh, streams of, of history in my work. Well, I have to ask this question. Uh, try not to be insulted I mean, <laughs> in the best possible way. But were you torn in college between becoming like an historian and an actuary? <laughs> Why life insurance? The history of life insurance. Please explain. Uh, so I actually, I, I no, I never wanted to be an actuary. Um, I went into uh, grad school. I knew I wanted to be a historian. Uh, initially, I wanted uh, I was going to study economic history, um, and uh, but in a history department because uh, I, I really wanted that strong historical basis. And I actually was interested in banking. Uh, so my first project was I intended to be on late 19th, early 20th century banking. And so that's what I was exploring early in my graduate career. And uh, my advisor actually uh, was talking to a pretty important um, historian, economic historian of banking and mentioned uh, me, his grad student to this to this person. And uh, he said he kind of rolled his eyes and said, oh, everybody does banking. <laughs> Um, but, you know, no one does life insurance, and it's in a really important financial intermediary, and we really don't know much about it. And so my advisor came back to me with that, and I thought, well, let me at least look into the possibility. What is this life insurance field? And as I started looking, I realized there was really only two scholarly works on life insurance. One had been written in the 60s, one in the 70s. Um, other than that, there was a bunch of uh, corporate uh, company histories, and uh, there was uh, 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 some articles. There were some uh, people who had done some work around the edges of life insurance or had looked at, uh, stumbled on life insurance and doing other work, but really hadn't focused on life insurance itself. So um, I thought, well, hey, you know, it's an open field. I can do a lot with it. Let me start doing it. And uh, I was still going to do late 1970s to 1920s was kind of my period I was looking at. And as I got into the research, uh, my antebellum chapter uh, morphed into the entire book Um, and and, and kind of late in the process, too. All of a sudden, uh, I I was getting pretty far into everything and went, oh, oh my God, I'm actually a, a, you know, a historian of the early republic. When did that happen? (laughs) So yeah. it kind of snuck up on me, but uh, it was a nice surprise. I've, I've, I've kind of embraced the period now. But Well, I mean, when you actually find in American history a field that is unplowed, yeah. you've got to go for it because there, there really aren't any anymore. I mean, it's, it's pretty right, tough to right. find that something was, that, new. 
Yeah, and, and it actually makes it hard to find a second project because uh, uh, you can't do it again. You can't you can't hit hit gold twice like that. <laughs> no way, it's just impossible. <laughs> uh, well, let's get into the book. Um, you know, so it, it is interesting. I think that life insurance does have a history that it didn't just you know it hasn't always been with us. Um, and one of the dilemmas you discuss regarding life insurance is that it. it it had a problem just uh, the, the early advocates of life insurance had a problem of legitimacy. Right. They had a problem just, you know, making themselves seem moral and, and necessary and legitimate. What was that problem of legitimacy and how did they overcome it? Well, the, the main problem they had um, was the history coming out of Europe. So um, life insurance did have a longer history in Europe, it, it actually people say it goes back to uh, Babylonian times, and uh, there's overlap with marine insurance. But the more recent history in Europe um, was kind of colorful. Uh, there was a lot of gambling policies, people taking out policies on the lives of other people that they really had no interest in whether or not they lived or died, <laughs> and then perhaps helping them along to their death. And uh, so there were there was a lot of shenanigans going on. And how much this happened is up for debate. But the certainly the impression was there that this was um, more about gambling and more about, uh, uh, you know, it was a, a encouraged crime and criminal behavior. Um, so a lot of European countries actually had banned it in the 16th, 17th, 18th century, banned it outright, and you weren't allowed to engage in life insurance. And England had tried to reform it. Um, they put in place this law in the 1770s to, to try to, um, this insurable interest law to make sure that um, in order to have a policy on someone, you had to have an, an interest in their ongoing life, that you weren't, you weren't going to benefit <laughs> from their death. Um, and, uh, but it's still, you know, even, the, the, even in England, uh, it still had um, some negative connotation. So obviously, America's constantly, you know, borrowing from England and copying things from England. And so uh, people were very concerned here that the reputation coming from Europe was going to um, prevent the industry from getting established here. And so the, the early promoters of the industry worked very hard, both to distance themselves from their, uh, from any um, relationship with the, with the European, with the British companies, um, which privately they were copying everything they could from them because they're trying to create an industry from scratch. So they're trying to mm -hmm. um, get all the, everything they can from these British companies. Uh, but publicly, they're trying to distance themselves. They're trying to show how they're different. They, we are um, uh, not too shock shocking, uh, more Puritan about this than the than the <laughs> British are. And so we kind of assert ourselves as uh, being um, adamant that you have to keep your insurable interest uh, for the entire life of the policy. And it, and it does make for a more secure industry. So that's that's the. The one problem they had with the really public, and the other thing was, of course, um, how do you value them? How do you price these uh, these policies? Um, and we didn't have uh, one of the huge problems they face actually throughout the 19th century is not having good mortality tables, not being able to predict. Um, and they're trying to convince the publicly. They're telling the public. Uh, we have a scientific basis. We know exactly on average. Um, how many people are going to die of a different given age in a given year? We don't know the individuals, but we know on average. Privately, they're saying we have no clue what we're doing. <laughs> uh, so they they have these two different faces they're trying to to put forth, and so it's uh, it's a really interesting conundrum that they have. So basically, the movie Double Indemnity yeah. has very very deep historical roots. Oh, I love and... that movie, and it, and it actually it kills. <laughs> I'll bet you do. It kills me that I couldn't work it into. Uh, the book but it's just so far far from uh the time period but yeah i love that movie <laughs> yeah that would that would have been a stretch yeah, i, yeah, think. I so think so we're gonna give you a pass on that one yeah. um but you know eventually despite the, these uh issues you know you, you really trace the early history of american life insurance to philadelphia right and a number of philadelphia businessmen who really saw uh some potential some profitable potential in life insurance uh why did they you think that they could actually make this work? What what led them to think that we can do this? Yeah, I think, um, you know, uh, marine insurance was already successful. Um, fire insurance um, had uh, 
been working pretty well at this point, even though fire insurance is going to be much smaller. You know, Philly is our financial capital still um, in this early period. And they're they're seeing um, the impact of urbanization uh, that, you know, it's it's somewhat mythical that the rural lifestyle took care of everyone. But there is some truth to that as well, that, uh, you know, you have a household economy and on a farm and uh, the women and the children can contribute to the farm and the father dies. That farm can continue. They can hire workers. They can work it themselves. So there is a mm-hmm. little more security in a rural lifestyle. Or you can be people can take you into their families and you can contribute to the household, even if they're taking you in as a widow or an orphan. And you get to the uh, urban environment, and uh, you now have this idea of a male breadwinner who's leaving the house, and uh, there's a lot of insecurity with someone that that male breadwinner dies and the the wife and children can't just take up his uh his career his uh his work for for themselves it's there's not as much um things for women and children to do in an urban society to contribute to a household so they're more of a burden uh financially and so this is a way um and people saw this people and ironically the the first people who saw this are actually ministers um because huh. uh they're the ones who are kind of living this lifestyle already they're not attached to so even in the rural communities they're not attached to a farm um they don't make a huge income and so there's a lot of insecurity for their families if if they die and so they're they're very early on ministers actually uh, and this goes against what other people have said um ministers very early on are, are supportive of this and people are, are trying to help minister. Some of the earliest American companies um, are not-for-profit companies organized by uh, the Presbyterian ministers and the Episcopal or Anglican Church uh, before the revolution, Anglican Church and the Presbyterian Church to um, provide for their ministers. So, But there's this, this sense of we have this problem now that we can't ensure our families uh, their, their economic security over the long term. Uh, there, there's much more insecurity. You're breaking ties. You no longer have strong family connections in urban environment. And, and so they're looking for a solution. And so the, these um, early op- entrepreneurs are kind of seeing a market potential. They still have to kind of create that market, uh, convince people that this is the solution that they should be exploring, but they see this as a potential solution to this, this market problem. Mm-hmm. They did have trouble though, developing a you know workable business model, yeah. right? I mean, just figuring out, you know, how do we make this profitable? Um, what were the big obstacles uh, they had to overcome to actually make this work and how did they do it? Yeah, so I think um, you know they uh, the biggest obstacles. You're you're starting from scratch. You're starting an industry um, that your people aren't demanding this. This is uh, you know I was talking about branding in my uh, class today, my business history class, <laughs> and um, sometimes people uh, sometimes you're filling a market need, and sometimes you're telling people they need something. So in some ways, this was the, they were trying to be the Steve Jobs telling you what you don't <laughs> realize that you absolutely need. Um, so they're, they're trying to cre- create this, uh, this product and convince people that they need this, that this is the solution to, to the problem. No one wants to talk about death. Um, no one wants <laughs> to admit that they possibly might be the one to die early. So this is another problem that they have. No one wants to have this discussion. The 30-year-olds the are going to say, well, it's not going to be me. Um, so one of the problems uh, or one of the solutions they have is to, to reframe the conversation to kind of make it more, well, it's not just you're protecting your families, but this is also a long-term investment. And let's, let's frame it. So very early on, they frame it as an investment opportunity for, <laughs> uh, for people. So that's that's uh, an, another uh, thing they have to address. They're obviously adopting the business model of Britain. They're they're very close ties um, privately with um, with British uh, insurers to adopt their model. But like I said, the absolute biggest problem for them was not knowing how to value these policies. And um, the there's a couple of 
mortality tables that British insurers use. We, the, the American insurers have no idea whether they're applicable in the United States. Um, they're, they could be too high. They could be too low. They, they have no idea the predictive power of these, um, especially because the United States is so different geographically. Um, people wonder, uh, are cities healthier or less healthy? Um, the North versus the South, rural areas versus or urban areas. There's all sorts of, um, different problems. And to develop a mortality table, it takes time. Um, it's also really hard to do if you have a a moving population. It's hard to mm-hmm, track people mm-hmm. living in, uh, you know, who's being born, who's dying, and who's just moving in and out of a community. So we have such a mobile population. And you don't have a central government saying, Everybody has to register their births. Everybody has to register their deaths or even a um, establishment church to do that for you. So uh, most people, uh, you know, are just moving in and out of communities or being born and dying without um, any oversight from a government agency or anyone able to track them. So uh, it's a it's a guessing game early on. They adopt the British tables. Um, They add a very hefty charge on top of it just in case um they're <laughs> lucky in the sense that the they overcharge they vastly overcharge um so the the industry doesn't go bankrupt initially which is a good thing uh <laughs> but that by vastly overcharging then they're limiting how many people want to buy insurance because sure it's expensive at first they also don't know it's it's hard to tell well we're overcharging today 10 years from now are, are we still overcharging? Cause you know, as the, as your population who are insured ages. So there, there was long-term angst in the industry as they're trying to do this. And they're constantly revising these tables. Um, they do it early on. They do it more or less in lockstep, the, the companies with each other. No one wants to break out too far. Um, they recognize right. that, uh, that this is, a um, something that they have to do together. Um, after the Civil War, there's a great growth in the industry. And then that's where you start having some companies uh, kind of uh, trying to break out and do something radically different, cut rates, um, ex- mm. you know, a lot. Um, but, but that tends to create some instability in the industry. But early on there, that's probably the biggest issue is um, just how do we value these policies correctly so that we because you're, you're talking about selling someone a policy and, and promising them you're not selling them a um you know a train ticket or uh, mm-hmm. you know a mm-hmm. can of soup you're selling them something that you're promising to pay them in 50 years so is your company still going to be in business yeah. in 50 <laughs> years it's, it's a much different mindset than a manufacturing company or uh you know or even a even a bank where you're you know you're talking about savings but you're not talking about necessarily a, a 30, 40, 50 year time frame. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the interesting things about this book is uh, you see some of the developments of, of, of some things we just consider quintessential elements of American culture. And one of those elements is the, the insurance agent. Yes. Uh, you know, the guy who comes to your door and uh, wants to sell you a policy because one of the dilemmas was, you know, how do we sell policies? Right. How do we reach out uh, to a public? as you said earlier, to sell them a product that they don't know they need. Right. Uh, so uh, who were the early insurance agents and what qualities did companies like, you know, the New York Life Insurance and Trust Company look for in an agent? Yeah. So the, the our stereotype of the life insurance agent is more of a late 19th century development. Um, the early life insurance, well, initially there were no agents. Um, initially, you had to go to the head office. So either in the, the first companies were either in Philly, Boston, or New York, you had to mm-hmm. go to the head office um, and appear before the the board of directors there. And they would, um, and you, you uh, there was a, an application form, but they would visually size you up and decide <laughs> whether they're, and, and they're not, they don't necessarily have any medical training in doing this. Um, you needed to provide a letter from a personal doctor and it had to be someone that they knew who it was. You had to provide a letter from a friend uh, that was well known in the community. So personal connections were extremely important. Um, and they had a vouch that, yes, this person um, uh, leads a healthy life. They haven't li- lied on their application form. Um, so early on, it was very unscientific. 
the the New York Life and Trust, um, and they're a really interesting company because they recognize very early on the potential to sell policy. Well, William Bard, the president of the company, he's the president and the actuary, first actuary. He um, recognizes that the safety of the industry depends on selling more policies. That if you only sell a handful of policies, any one death could be catastrophic. But if you mm. if you have this spread out and that that the insurance tables, the mortality tables, that they don't know whether they're going to work, but they can't work over a small group of people that even if they're correct, they have to be spread over a large group of people for it to be true. So he recognizes this essential problem that you you have to sell more policies and you do that by lowering the price. So he's constantly trying to reevaluate the tables to see can we lower lower the price, but also by spreading your market, opening up a wider market. And he realizes that, well, we can't just limit ourselves to New York City. We can't limit ourselves just to the people who can get to our home office. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he starts targeting um, the cities. Initially, it's the cities along the Erie Canal um, through New York, particularly Rochester becomes very important in all of this. Um, and uh, he wants to start expanding sales out to these uh, different areas. But who do you have as your agent? Who do you trust? Who can the company trust? And so initially, they are looking for people who have connections in the community, who know a lot of people, who are going to know who the doctors are, who are going to know who a lot of the people applying are, who are going to know the people in the reference letters. So it has to be someone with a lot of connections. They're also worried. They don't want someone who is uh, so dependent on the commission that they're going to be lax about who they let through. They don't want to be writing policies on poor lives. So they want someone that they can, they can trust in that respect. They don't want someone who's looking out for a short-term buck. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and so this is actually very similar to um, Rowena Alligaria um, has a great book on uh, called The Culture of Trust um, on credit rating agencies. And very similar to the credit rating agencies, the, the, um, Life insurers hone in on up-and-coming lawyers as being their (laughs) ideal group. And for a number of reasons. One, they do have all these connections in the community. Two, they have higher aspirations. They are not just looking out for their immediate profit. They're looking for status in the community. They're looking for connections. They're often looking for um, political aspirations. So it's someone who they think they can trust is not going to uh, try to defraud them or, or sell the, sell bad policies in the short term because they're looking for that long-term relationship. They're looking to create a long-term reputation. Their reputation matters, both mm-hmm. um, their reputation in the community, but also there's a reputation with a large company that could prove helpful for them. Uh, the companies also see these lawyers as, as having potential once they do um, get into politics. Well, that could help with um, uh, le- regulation within the state legislature. That they can mm. have some influence if it's uh, a former uh, former life insurance or current life insurance agent um, could have some potential influence that could be helpful to them. So they see this as a a win win. So these are not your your seedy elements initially. These are kind <laughs> of your your a thirty year old lawyer trying to establish his name in the community. That's their ideal person. Um, hmm. And someone they're they're not going to be dedicated to life insurance. So these are not dedicated agents. Uh, you do eventually get uh, dedicated agents, but these, um, the, they're going to have their lawyer shingle out and below it um, would be, you know, you can also apply to me for life insurance with the New York Life and Trust. And um, they're not, actively going out to solicit, even though the company expects them to talk it up among their friends, to talk to people that are coming into their office, but they're not knocking on doors. Um, So the company is still relying on word of mouth, but now they're putting their people into the community now um, out there to serve as their eyes and ears um, until they have a more scientific way. And, And they expect these agents to actually size up, just like the board of directors were doing, size right. up the applicants, you know, 
don't know it? Uh, do, you know, do they engage in dangerous habits that we're not aware of? <laughs> um, are they, uh, what did their parents die of? They, they said their parents, uh, you know, died in a train crash. Well, did their parents actually die of consumption at, at 30? You know, so they want that kind of information from these agents. So, so a lot of it, it it's, uh, you know, car, car, trying to recreate that rural fishbowl where you can't get, a, you can't get away with anything. They're trying to mm-hmm. recreate that with these agencies, local agents. And, you know, what do you know? To ask around, you don't know about this person. Well, ask around, maybe your friends know something about the person. And, uh, mm-hmm really trying to um find out in now and also visually look at them because uh, you know before they had medical exams they they needed to visually you know does this person look healthy not just do they have a healthy family <laughs> history do they look like they're someone who's gonna live to be a strong life and so you see these letters going back and forth between the agents and the companies and they're fascinating because they're they really are um, having these conversations about individual policyholders and putting in their personal um, observations and, um, you know, and, and, and writing to them, hey, you know, I know, um, I, you know, they, that this person looks good on paper, but I'm not feeling good about uh, giving him this policy or, or the opposite. This person looks bad on paper, but you know what? I think, um, you know, his his brother and sister died young, but he has a strong constitution. He, the way he's built it, I don't think he's consumptive. Um, and so they have these, <laughs> these conversations, uh, back and forth in the, in the letters. And they're really, they're really great to read. So it's very much like what Dun and Bradstreet yes. would do, which is getting, you know, just feet on the ground yep. and the man on the street and actually saying, you know, we can trust this guy. He's got a reputation. He's got a you know, I, I interviewed his neighbors and stuff right. like that. So yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Great. It's very much like that. This- same, the same exact type of mentality, um, same exact pro- approach, and uh, you know, really trying to, you know, you're you're living in this this anonymous world, this urban environment, and it's trying to break down that anonymity again. That that's the the biggest fear is people either they know they're sick, they um, fear that they have a, a weak family history. There's something uh, that the person applying knows. Uh, that is making them come in to get insurance. And you don't want the person who's going to die tomorrow. You don't want the person who thinks they're, (laughs) you know, going to be short lived. Um, And so you want to uh, have a way of weeding those people out. Your biggest fear is the, is the person who comes in and, you know, looks good, but secretly (laughs) knows that they're not healthy, that they've been spitting up blood for the last uh, two weeks and they're concerned about their health. (laughs) Well, the, the next topic will file under the more things change and where they stay the same, and that is fraud. Yes. <laughs> um, so, you know, of course, this was just like looking at somebody and figuring out if they're really healthy or if they are, as you charmingly said, spitting up blood <laughs> in secret. Um, you know, what kinds of uh, fraud dilemmas did early companies face? And, you know, how did they try to anticipate or deal with fraud? And the next question is related to this, and that is the question of reputation. Right. Because, you know, then and now, life insurance companies did not have a great reputation. And you deny somebody a claim, and you look like a heartless bastard. Right, right. Um, and so, you know, these, these companies are, are faced with saying, you know, did this guy, you know, did he commit suicide because he's trying to get the claim for his family? You know, is, is this on the level? Are we looking at double indemnity? You know. So how did they, what kinds of frauds did they deal with and how did they try to anticipate and, and deal with these frauds and how did they deal with the questions of reputation? Right, right. And the question of reputation is going to be a problem throughout. Um, so the earliest frauds are going to be more lying on the policy application. Um, you know, you're t- saying your parents uh, died of uh, some of an accident and not natural causes and uh, that they died older than they did and um, or um, lying about your own uh, history, your own health history. Um, and, uh, spinning of blood was a sign of consumption, which was their biggest fear. That's why I use that example, but, uh, but lying about, uh, your own health history. So those kinds of frauds would be the, uh, the most common that you would see. Um, and they had a, a variety of ways that they tried to, um, Fight that they asked detailed uh, and in- increasingly detailed questions on the policy applications. First policies only had about five questions. Um, by the uh, Civil War, there could be a hundred 
health questions on your uh, wow. application. Yeah, and and and, and it, the British industry actually mocks the American industry for going <laughs> overboard. And there's a, a number of commentaries in uh, newspapers and stuff where where uh, it, this co- comes up for quite a bit of mockery uh, in the public. You know these these detailed applications. But um, so one way is to just ask more detailed questions and maybe catch someone off guard that they don't realize what information they're giving you. Another is to, you know, require the, um, a medical exam. Um, either initially it's by your personal physician. Eventually all the companies develop, um, uh, medical examiner staffs that who, who will examine them. Um, and again, this is, you know, there, there's, uh, this is still early in the science, so it's hard to, for these uh, doctors to be predicting, but it's it's another way sure. to try to uh, combat these kinds of fraud and um, having people vouch for you uh, for the truthfulness of your statements and also the, the the constant threat that if you did lie on your application, then and we find out then that application is is null and void and we're not going to pay off your beneficiaries. Mm-hmm. Um, other types of fraud, uh, suicide was a huge issue. Uh, well, I don't want to say it's a huge a huge concern. Uh, I don't want to make it sound like everybody's committing suicide, but uh, <laughs> but it was a huge concern. One, having to prove suicide, but two, um, suicide was always uh, banned in a policy. It was always uh, one of the things that you the company would not pay out in the case of suicide. But very quickly, it comes down to, well, are you going to challenge uh, a family, say, well, we think it's suicide and they don't. And so there's reputational issues there. Mm-hmm. And then you also have um, the question of, well, is this the commission of suicide? Should that really be classified um, as uh, a, a, a voluntary act? And very early on, mm. people start arguing. And this this coincides that there's a... Uh, Rick Bell just did a great book on suicide, the history of suicide in this very same period. And uh, we were uh, postdocs together, uh, or I was a postdoc and he was a predoc. And, um, and so we had a lot of overlap with our, with our, uh, <laughs> our stuff here, but um, they, um, so there was a, there's a changing attitude towards suicide. So it used to be that suicide was automatically, you're going to hell. This is the worst thing you could do. <laughs> Self-murder. Um, there's a changing attitude in this period that people start saying, well, is, is suicide a sign of insanity? Is it really, um, can you really hold that person culpable? Is, is, um, you know, are you more likely, are most suicides committed by people who are insane or all suicides? Is is suicide evidence in and of itself of insanity? Mm. And if that's the case, can you, can you uh, hold the beneficiaries at fault, the family at fault? It's like uh, punishing them twice. First, your loved one committed suicide, and now we're not going to pay out on your policy. Is it punishing them twice to do that? Um, so it, it becomes very contentious, and the companies, they're, they're constantly trying to deal with this. Well, you know, they change the wording of the policy. Um, now it's not only um, suicide. Uh, now they say suicide sane or insane and they they try to actually like <laughs> like put that in there as part of it but but this is a problem that um continues to haunt them the whole time even though it's not huge numbers of people um and if it's someone who takes out a policy and immediately commits suicide it's a little easier for them to fight because then they could say it was premeditated if it's someone though that has an ongoing policy for five six years and suddenly commits suicide well then it wasn't necessarily fraudulent. So one of the ways they deal with a lot of these frauds, these these um, issues on the uh, of lying on the application of suicides, they, they eventually realize the actuaries realize that the risk from these uh, these types of fraud reduce over time. And hmm. so once a policy has been in place for say five years. The um, and some people argued it was as short as three years. The it's no longer messing up the mortality tables. So if you have all these people taking out fraudulent policies and then dying immediately, that's going to really mess up your mortality tables, your predictors mm-hmm. of who's going to die. Um, but the the actuaries say, you know, after five years or so, it's it's no longer a concern. So they actually started writing into the policies um, that they would be in they would be uncontestable or incontestable after 
a certain number of years. And usually it was it was five years. And that after that point, unless it was a, a more egregious type of fraud, uh, they would they would not contest a policy. And so that was one way they tried to balance this, lit, you know, this litigation issue with trying to keep uh, keep the frauds out. Right. Now, certainly the most the most heinous types of fraud would be murder. Um, and uh, that happened extremely rarely, uh, but they always it <laughs> always so. made the news. Um, and and, and it, whether it happened in Britain or the United States, it made the news. And, uh, you know, so a, a, a British case would be just as detrimental to the industry's reputation as an American case. And it was great for fiction. So there was a lot of fictional literature <laughs> talking about, you know, uh, murdering for life insurance policy. So that um, also worked negatively for the industry. Um, there, there were quite a few, especially, and this seems to have blossomed um, into the 1860s as life insurance really, um, really is expanding rapidly. You see more faked deaths, so um, not outright murders, um, but people faking their death to, to get the claim on a life insurance policy. And certainly when you you don't track social security numbers. You don't have fingerprints. Um, it's easy for so, and you have a very mobile society. It's easy enough for someone to uh, fake their own death and then move somewhere else and create a new identity, and no one's the wiser. Um, and so you would have uh, people. Um, the the most common ways to fake a death. Um, one was drowning because uh, it was relatively easy. Um, to either um, dig up a recently dead body to use um, to throw in the water. And, and, and once a waterlogged body is found, you yeah. can't recognize yeah. it um, yeah. or the body's never found. So you did, and you always need some witnesses and sometimes the witnesses are willing sure. and sometimes they're, sure. they have no idea they're participating. You, you know, go off for a swim and never come back and they never find your body. <laughs> so either, so that, that was a very common thing. Drowning was a very common way to fake, fake death. Um, you, um, also, uh, you know, the funeral was a huge deal cause you need to, um, if you fake a death, uh, in another way, you need a body. Um, yes, and do. so funerals, again, you would either, um, put in a, um, a recently dead body into the coffin. So <laughs> dig up a body and put it into the coffin in, in your place. Um, and, uh, or you would fill it with some kind of debris. So you would have rocks and sticks and twigs to weigh the approximate weight of a man. And then you just seal it and, Oh, you do not. And, and oftentimes yeah. you, would, you, you need a doctor who up. was <laughs> present at the death and they would say, Oh, you don't want to open that coffin. That was, you know, <laughs> there's some really bad miasma coming out of that. So, you know, leave that closed. And, and um, in all these cases, you you often had the the person faking their death would would show up at the funeral in disguise to witness <laughs> their um, their own funeral. Um, and then like general hospital. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, and, and then they would go off. And so these cases seem to become more common in the 1860s, um, even though they could have been happening earlier. But we 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 aren't we just aren't catching them as much. Um, outright murder was very rare. Um, but again, it would show up in the literature, and that was what people really feared was that people are being murdered. And so all these cases would show up in um, in newspaper articles and magazine articles, and the industry was always so quick to to reply. They, they knew that there would be nothing worse yeah, to their reputation than getting... Uh, being associated with crime. And so whenever you had Henry Mayhew, the, the very famous uh, British uh, uh, journalist, and, uh, you know, he was kind of the British muckraker, um, you know, talking about the poor in London, he did this expose on British life insurance. And he and, and it was published in uh, both in Britain and America. And he ends this expose where he's going through office by office and how he's interviewed people. And they're telling them all telling him all these stories about people poisoning people and people. You know, the worst <laughs> thing to, is to be married to a doctor because he knows how to poison you and, uh, and all these kinds of things. And, he's, and it's just really sensational. And he ends the whole thing with. 
what would happen if we asked the American offices, you know, and, and it was kind of like this challenge and, and the American, and the British industry ignores them. The American industry goes berserk and they have, you know, they respond and, and, you know, this is ridiculous. We have no evidence of any of this happening. This is stuff that happens overseas. It's because the, uh, the British are, you know, just don't, um, they're, they don't take keep control of their industry and they, you know, but this doesn't happen here. And, and they were very concerned about that. So both the being associated with crime and on the flip side, the, the you know, being overly litigious and uh, they never wanted to be found challenging claims right. unfairly. They often would settle a questionable claim rather than take it to court. And, um, you know, anytime they challenged a claim that seemed like it was unfair Everybody always came down on the industry. The jury came down the industry. The mm. public came down. So they had to be really careful uh, because if they didn't challenge claims, then the fraud would be rampant. But if they did challenge claims, right. they get this bad reputation. So it was this constant, just like with the mortality tables, they, they struggled with this all, all year, all um, century. With the, the issues of litigation, they struggled all century. Right. One of the things that you describe in this book is the, uh, you know, the rise of the middle class, which is sort of a commonplace of the historical literature in this period, and the ways in which the insurance uh, business saw the rise of the middle class as a huge opportunity, mm-hmm. and they they appealed to both the middle class's fears and their aspirations in order to get them to sign up for life insurance. How did they, you know, in what ways did they do both of those things? Yeah, so this is what I was saying at the be- beginning that. Um, You know, on the one hand, it's really your middle class who's your target market. They're the ones who, um, you know, they're establishing this comfortable lifestyle for their family. They have these aspirations that they're they're going to be able to get their kids educated. They're going to be able to set their sons up in business. They're going to find a good husband for their their daughters, and that their families are going to be able to live comfortably on their um, salaries. But they realize that unlike the rich who, you know, have a, you know, investment income and, uh, you know, a fallback, that if they were to die tomorrow, their families will be just thrown into turmoil. Um, mm-hmm. Their wife may have to start working, taking in sewing, taking in, uh, you know, laundry. Uh, their their children may have to drop out of school. You know, their sons may have to now, you know, claw their way up rather than being um, said in business. So they're very concerned about these kinds of issues. So they're an easy target market for life insurers to say, you're the ones who would benefit most from this. Um, yes, you can use a savings bank. Yes, you can, you know, put away your, um, your pennies every, every week and, uh, try to save up over time. But, um, what if you die tomorrow? Um, you die tomorrow and you've paid one premium We'll pay you out the entire amount of your policy, and your mm-hmm. and your family will be set. And um, it, it was almost that they they really pl- played into um, the mindset of the middle class. You know, you, you're you're meant to be a provider for your family. I mean, you're not doing your duty if you die. You may not have control of that, but you're no longer doing your duty. But your wife may have to remarry. Um, and then, you know, that may be her only way out of this. And so this was a, a really an appeal to their their greatest fear, um, which was falling out of the middle class, that their their families wouldn't stay middle class, that they um, their their sons and daughters would have to start from a lower level. They wouldn't be better off. But as I said, no one actually wants to talk about death. No one really is excited <laughs> to, you know, consider the possibility that they're going to die young. So they did also want to tap into the aspirations of the middle class. And just as they fear falling out of the middle class, they aspire to climb higher within it or even mm-hmm. um, into a higher class. So um, they tried to really tap into that as well and to, to make it more of an investment. And this is where the, um, particularly the mutual life companies, um, when they develop, uh, in the, in the 1840s, um, even though the first mutuals in the 1830s, they they really take off in the 1840s. They really try to tap into this idea that by buying a policy, you are making an investment and there's not many investment opportunities for the middle class at this time. You, um, to, Buy stocks and bonds requires uh, in a, co- a considerable initial investment that most people don't have. It's not mm, available, yeah. and you don't have um, 
Uh, savings banks are really meant for the poor. Um, they're, they actually block out middle class depositors because they're trying to be more philanthropic. And, and you don't, and, and regular banks are not um, really designed for a savings function. So they, they don't really have it many places to put their excess income and to try to increase on that. So the life insurers actually step in and they're, they're almost like the uh, mutual funds of the 19th century, mm-hmm. kind of your middle class investment, low risk high return investment opportunity. And so they, um, they, they kind of tap into this idea that of, uh, well, we're overcharging you because <laughs> we don't know what the actual mortality is. Um, but rather than the profits going to dividends to shareholders, we're going to make the company mutual. And now any profits um, are going to be distributed among the policyholders, and so they they make this, and they they talk about it in terms. Of, now it's really, uh, in reality, they're paying back your overpayments, <laughs> but they call it <laughs> dividends, and they use investment language mm-hmm. to really make you feel like, well, you're you're you know playing in high finance here, but it's low yeah. risk. There's you're not going to lose anything because if if you die, your your family gets the death benefit, and if the company does poorly, they do not come after you. Um, and try to make you pay more. So there's a yeah. there's a floor. You 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 have this potential to get this dividend, um, and and they do actually pay dividends over time. Uh, but but there's no downside for you. So it's a, a low risk uh, investment for them. And so that really appeals more to people because they're they're getting the death side of it, but they they can focus more on the um, this is an investment opportunity. This is something that will benefit me in the in the long term by the by the 1850s 1860s the, the the industry actually takes that to an extreme and um actually designs specifically investment policies um these uh deferred dividend policies which are um kind of gambling uh you're you're put <laughs> into a you're put into a pool of people say um 100 people and you you have a you know your fixed life insurance policy your normal life insurance policy um but they say, we're not going to give you any dividends for, and it's a set amount of years for, say, 15, 20 years, no dividends. We're going to take those dividends and reinvest them ourselves. And at the end of the 20 years, um, if you die in the meantime, your, your family gets the death benefit. No problem. Um, if at the end of the 20 years, anyone who's still left, who hasn't died or who hasn't lapsed on their policy payments, whoever's left gets to divide up all of that investment. Um, and so they, they promise these huge returns for people who participate in this. And um, especially because, well, you knew you weren't going to be the person who died and you weren't going to be the stupid one who lapsed on your policy. So you were going to be in the small group that really benefited mm. in the end. And, and this actually became um, sort of uh, 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 the, the companies um, by the late 19th, by, by uh, the turn of the century. Um, and this is a little outside of my period, but by the turn of the century, this is um, something like a, I want to say like a third of all policies, if not more, were in this form. Um, but the companies wow. were actually abusing it and they were uh, <laughs> abusing by not paying these dividends. They actually were using it for lavish parties and, oh um, <laughs> you know, for their uh, uh, uh Paying for you know fancy offices and stuff like that, so that um, it actually became a problem. But they but they really tried to highlight the dividend end of things yeah. and the investment side, and um, you know it made it more of a positive rather than. I mean, they did de- they definitely played into the sentimental literature and oh woe is woe is me you know my my child is going to grow up in poverty because I didn't get you know and they did play up on that side yeah. of things, but they also recognized that they needed to play up on the positives as well. Well, this is a, uh, a big issue in your book, but I'm going to ask you for a quick answer because we're running short on time. Okay. And that is that how did the Civil War, you argued the Civil War sort of transformed uh, life insurance in the United States. How did it do so? Uh, yeah, so that's a, that's a big issue. Um, the, the, the short answer, I don't know if there's a short answer. The short answer is, so um, at this point, the industry had somewhat stagnated by the 1850s. Um, and there Primarily in the North, um, they do have some policies in the South. Um, mm-hmm. And the Civil War breaks out and they have to decide what to do. 
Um, and for their Southern policyholders, because they didn't have a huge, uh, there were some Southern companies catering to the South, but uh, the, the major part of the industry was in the North. They pretty much cut off their Southern policyholders. And, um, and there, there's uh, huge issues there with how they dealt with those Southern policyholders. But they pretty much said, we're not going to be concerned about you. We're going <laughs> to focus on our Northern policyholders. For the North, the issue was, what do we do about either existing policyholders who go off to war? Because um, war was always banned in the policy unless you had a, sp- mm-hmm. a special mm-hmm. rider to, to go to war. Um, what do we do about someone who goes to war or someone who wants a policy who is currently in the military? And they're very ingenious in, in this. They decide they, they had been having um, uh, a couple meetings of the industry to, to collude on a couple other issues. And they decide, you know, let's have a discussion over this. And they come to an agreement that um, where they agree, no one's bound by this, but they, most of them follow through on this. They agree they're going to charge a very heavy surcharge for going to war. <laughs> but if they're all charging it, then there's no competition to undercut anyone else. So they're all charging mm-hmm. this heavy surcharge. Um, for their existing policyholders, um, many of them decide they're not going to take on new policyholders. Some some decide to take on new policyholders going to war um, with this this uh, you know expensive surcharge. Um, but then they publicize, oh look at us, we are doing our patriotic duty. We're stepping up. We are um, participating <laughs> in this. And um, and they if someone dies and they pay off a policy, it is plastered everywhere. Um, so it's actually a very small percentage of people who get the benefits of being insured during the war, very few soldiers, um, but the industry plays it to the max and really makes it um, a huge marketing tool. And so the combination of this, you know, this taking on this patriotic banner and also a, a heightened, I argue, a heightened sensitivity to death and death among the young that occurs during this mm-hmm. period. Um, by the time the the war ends, the industry just takes off and scale sales skyrocket, and you have um, many new companies. So, so the industry is relatively stagnant for much of the 1850s, and then you know, in the midst of the war and after the war, uh, you have all these new companies. You have high sales volume, and and, and it creates new problems for the industry when you have this rapid, rapid growth. But mm-hmm. um, but that's where I think the the uh, war comes in, where they they used it for uh, for advertising, they used it to promote patriotism, and uh, and just a heightened sense of mortality. Um, Southerners, it's a completely different story, but for for at least for their <laughs> northern customers, that's how they dealt with it. Right. I want to tell my listeners that you know during this interview, uh, you know, we can only touch on um, some of the main topics of this book we you've mentioned the south and i'm glad you did because you know there's a whole chapter on slavery and insuring yeah. slaves and and you know the image of uh, the industry and so forth but uh sharon murphy i want to thank you for joining us today uh this is a fascinating conversation i want to remind our readers that when you listen to this there'll be a little button on the right side with an image of this book that links directly to the amazon page so let's uh Throw Sharon Murphy some royalties. Oh, great. Thank uh, you. <laughs> because when you write books in history, you don't really expect royalties. No, but you don't. Uh, <laughs> let's get some. So, Sharon Murphy, thanks so much for joining us Thank today. Thank you. You bet. Uh, this is Dan Kilbride with New Books in American Studies. We've been talking with Sharon Murphy about her book, Investing in Life, Insurance, and in Antebellum America. We'll see you next time. Bye bye. <laughs>